Before today's episode starts, just a short note to say that it does include some strong language. Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 6. Discord. On this week's episode, I wanted to explore The Boundary. The Boundary is the name I've given the line that seems to separate musical theatre from other theatre. I often observe that people seem to be able to work in plays or musicals, but rarely both. Rebecca Brewer, however, has worked in both plays and musicals. She seems to be one of the rare people able to cross the boundary. Becky graduated from Guildford School of Acting's musical theatre course and was immediately cast in Trevor Nunn's production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Aspects of Love at the Menier Chocolate Factory. This was then followed by a season at the Royal Shakespeare Company, performing in Rupert Gould's production of Merchant of Venice and Anthony Nielsen's production of Marat Saad. Even at this early stage, she had already been able to cross the boundary between plays and musicals. Work following these jobs includes both plays, such as A Chorus of Disapproval and Relative Values in the West End, and musicals, such as Beyond the Fence in the West End, and currently, she's performing in the Threatney Opera at the National Theatre. Uh, Hiya. Thanks very much. Yes, thank you. And Yes, thank you. That's it. Nice. Can I get some like um, salt and vinegar and mayonnaise? Yeah. Thank you. Yum. I caught Becky between shows at the National Theatre and interviewed her over dinner in a quite noisy restaurant. I started by asking her about the boundary and how she thought she had been able to work on both plays and musicals. I've done a lot of plays that would flirt with that boundary a little bit. So I've done a, my first play that I did, proper play, out of drama school was Merchant of Venice at the RSC, but set in Las Vegas, where I was a Elvis singing showgirl. It was like that job was more musical theatre than some of the musicals that I've done. It was more glitzy and what, what one would think of when they think about musicals. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, and that's kind of how I managed to get into doing plays in the first place was because they needed somebody that could sing a bit and danced a bit and so I was able to trespass over into the, 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 the bit where you don't have to look after your voice so much. Already, Becky has subverted our expectations of what a play and a musical are. She's just described a play which is loud, glitzy and bombastic and compared it to some of the other musicals which she has done, which are subtler, darker and more intimate. What she's done is shown that in terms of an audience, people expect musicals to be one thing and plays to be another. And that actually, it seems to me that her career is predicated on being able to do what people expect in one medium in the other. So she achieves skillful, quiet acting at times in musicals and achieves loud, bombastic singing and dancing in plays. So it seems to me that Becky's ability to cross the boundary is predicated on her ability to do the right thing, but sometimes at the wrong time. I ask her if she thinks she can pinpoint the difference between the way music is used in the plays she's done and in the musicals she's done. I guess, I guess the, the fundamental difference would be that in a musical, the song is there to... to further propel the story and, and through that song you learn something about the character that they're not saying in the text to somebody else 
their inner thoughts or you, you sort of you've progressed hopefully between between the time the song has started and the time the song has ended you have progressed further in your learning about this person or this situation whereas a lot of the plays that I've done where music has been featured it's been more of a scene setting thing or an underscore um to set a mood it's not necessarily to propel a character journey I think Becky has laid this out very clearly in musicals traditionally the song teaches us about the character and also propels the story but the other reason I like music and song is their ability to convey tone and emotional information that words can't convey on their own so I do often enjoy it when music is used to convey that tone even if that slightly subverts the rules of musical theatre I enjoy the way directors of plays such as even Van Hover or Benedict Andrews do use underscore in songs to convey information in their shows that we wouldn't otherwise get. And it feels like those directors are learning more and more from musical theatre and indeed from cinema about how to use music in an integrated and satisfying way. More and more it seems that people who don't work in musicals are either trespassing on the boundary or getting closer and closer to it. I think shows are really good when, when, when they do sort of poke that boundary a bit um, and I think neither neither party the sort of musical theatre people nor the straight theatre people should be afraid of dipping their toe in the water of the other side as such because there's a lot to learn from that and I think I think sometimes the, the, the division makes things unhelpful Becky mentions that the traditional idea of musicals being fun and silly and plays being deep and serious is also difficult for her. That we should always challenge our expectations, look for the serious side of accessible musicals and also realise that there can be fun in the serious and challenging plays. They take it too seriously. <laughs> if they think it's a pinter, oh, it's pinter, no, like, no. You can still have a laugh. <laughs> I ask her what she thinks musicals can learn from plays. I think... Um, Doing plays gives you the ability to be less structured in your performance. I think sometimes a lot of the, definitely the, the musicals that are long running, um, you don't have as much of an opportunity to make things a bit more messy in the acting side of things. Because they're, they're crafted really specifically and there's not that much manoeuvre for messiness, I guess. And, um, and I really enjoy watching messiness when I go to the theatre. Um, this is fascinating to me. The thought that perhaps because musicals require so many different pieces to fit together and so many collaborations, that they end up looking a lot more organised and hence a lot more polished. And perhaps because of this, they rarely end up looking or feeling as messy as some plays. And there are people, including Becky, that like things to be messy and complicated rather than neat and polished. And maybe that's a problem with musical theatre. I then asked Becky the reverse question, what she thinks plays can learn from musical theatre. I guess not being scared of a heightened emotion or something that seems on the surface of it a bit odd. Not always needing reality to... to to create emotion or a good night. Earlier this year, Becky performed in her first musical for five years. One thing that I found really odd was underscoring. <laughs> so, like, 
in the tech when we had the band and stuff suddenly I'd be like just having a chat with someone and then there's some guy playing like a massive symphony <laughs> going on above me and I'm like wow this is really weird and it put me off quite a lot but then I sort of got to grips with it but just things like that where music is a, is a lot more of a feature in the show than in a play in a play it's just sort of it's just a bit quieter basically you've not got like a full on <laughs> royal philharmonic when you're just doing the speech um, yeah just little things like that about uh, about music specifically Becky went on to suggest that the presence of music and singing lessens the reality of a piece of musical theatre. You know, when you're doing a play, your, your, your focus is to try and make the situation as close to real life as possible. So you have all your stuff in your bag that you'd normally have in your bag. and you're, It's essentially, you're, you're trying to make it realistic. Whereas that, it's just so bizarre that you suddenly touch someone's shoulder and then a massive music bit comes out and you're like, oh, okay. So like, it's, it's hard, I found it harder doing a musical to sort of stay in the realms of reality like genuine reality between humans. I responded to this by saying to Becky that most of the theatre that interests me is not necessarily interested in creating reality on stage. I think if you want to see a, a, a really realistic piece of theatre, if that's what you want to go and see, you probably wouldn't choose to go and see a musical. You might choose to go and see uh, Alex Zeldin play. Alex Zeldin is a playwright and director noted for his extreme naturalism. And his most recent play was called Beyond Caring, which transferred from the Yard Theatre in Hackney Wick in East London to the National Theatre. I think if you want to see a, a, a really realistic piece of theatre, if that's what you want to go and see, you, you probably wouldn't choose to go and see a musical. You might choose to go and see uh, Alex Zeldin play or, you know, something a bit different. But that's not to say that there's a lack of emotional truth in musicals, because I don't think that is true. I just think it's a, because the form is different, you do sort of have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. I went on to ask Becky about her training. I trained at Guildford School of Acting on a musical theatre course for three years. Uh, that was my proper formal training. And before that, I'd sort of started late doing kind of local dance classes but I only started when I was about 12 I didn't really do it before that. So Becky trained in musical theatre which means by the time she went to GSA she'd already acknowledged that there was a boundary and picked a side of it. I asked why she chose that side. I did I never even thought about applying for a for an acting course um, because I I just thought I was doing the right thing in terms of I could sing a bit and I could dance a bit and I thought well if I'm gonna you know do this I may as well try and culture every single thing that I can do in order to make my work better so it was an active decision about I didn't decide oh I want to do musical theatre because I only want to work in musicals it was I can do these things so I should probably try and get better at them to broaden the horizons so Becky didn't train in musical theatre only to do musicals she studied on that course at GSA because she could act and sing and dance and wanted to get better at all of those skills I think too often the industry assumes that people with those skills can only do musicals. But I think a large part of Becky's ability to work on both sides of the boundary is that she's outspoken about wanting to do so, about defying people's expectations of what belongs in what medium. I also think as theatre on both sides begins to flirt with what is at the boundary, the performers like Becky are in much higher demand. In a time of multidisciplinary theatre, it's no longer good enough for performers to only do one thing. 
I asked Becky if there was much interaction or overlap between the students studying musical theatre at GSA and those studying straight acting. Yeah, we were quite we were quite separate. We didn't really do much of the same classes, really. They, yeah, we we were kept quite apart. Uh, I don't really know what what they did whilst we were like learning to do the splits and stuff. <laughs> this doesn't seem to bother Becky much, but it does bother me because there are such huge overlaps in the industry between all types of theatre, and the idea of separating actor training totally seems to enforce the idea of a boundary at an early stage and seems to foster the belief in the difference of the various theatrical mediums. When I first got to drama school, I, on my iPod was like a mixture of Miss Saigon and then like the Libertines and the Distillers, loads of hardcore rock music, and I had a reasonably strong East Midlands accent I, I was just I was a, I was a little bit different and I, I wasn't as good as the other people in terms of like technical singing and technical dancing I was just nowhere near as good as any of them and I was just kind of a bit bullshy I guess I was just a bit annoyed I don't know why I was just a bit annoyed at life um, and what they did throughout my training is they kind of stripped that away and made me much more marketable as a sort of 21 year old ingenue which if you'd have seen me when I first walked into drum school you'd just been like mm, she's not gonna do that but you know and by my third year I played Cinderella in the in the panto at the Avonano which was not on the cards at all to begin with so I think musical theatre training is a lot more about making people marketable and making you try and fit in a certain box because for musical theatre sometimes that's more useful whereas all the plays that I've done and stuff they want you to not really be in a box necessarily as such. So Becky arrived at drama school as an individual a messy angry self-confessed oddball and musical theatre training was she thinks perhaps designed to polish her and make her suitable for the various roles found in big west end musicals rather than retain her individuality whereas she says the plays she has done have often benefited from individuality from a messy, unique, unpolished sensibility. So I wonder, are musicals more about fitting into an assigned box while plays are about bringing the individual warts and all to what you do? And how can we change that? So in some ways, I think musical theatre training is brilliant because it did, it did what I needed it to do. I graduated, I had an agent, I got a job, and, um, and I was really marketable for all that kind of stuff. But... In some ways, I do think they need to be careful in these colleges when they're training kids, essentially, that they don't strip them of what is different about them. I suggest to Becky that perhaps she's managed to work on both sides of the boundary because she's retained an individuality and a messiness. And I ask if that's why she thinks she hasn't done a long-running West End musical, because they require a polish that perhaps she hasn't aspired to. When I've auditioned for those jobs, I just haven't got them. I just haven't, you know, I used to I used to go in for all those shows all the time and I'd do all right, I'd get a recall or I'd maybe get a bit further but I would, they, they just weren't the jobs that I won um, for whatever reason, maybe because I'm not suited I'm definitely not anywhere near as good a singer as some of the people that are in those big shows who have got these flawless voices that can just sing absolutely anything but if you need someone like that you don't, you don't call me it's interesting to me that in pop and rock, we don't tend to like flawless voices. We like voices where we can hear the flaws and the individuality. 
In fact, a lot of famous musicians have weird voices rather than flawless ones. Probably in pop, yeah, but not in... You, you don't find that in, in, in Les Mis. It's interesting that the music we listen to on our iPods as teenagers is predicated on individuality, and that in big West End musicals, the idea of uniformity and polish are so present. I asked Becky why she thinks so few people get to do both, both plays and musicals, to be on both sides of the boundary. I think there's a, a snobbery on the side of the straight theatre. I'm just going to call it that for ease and convenience, but we both know that I'm just talking about things that aren't musicals. Yeah. I realise at this moment that I've also been calling non-musical theatre straight theatre because that's what people tend to call traditional plays centred on dialogue. However, that term, it seems to me, is just as problematic as that of musical theatre because it tends to pigeonhole work and define our expectations of what that work will be. It seems to anchor our expectations in the world of something straightforward, simple and potentially even bland. There's a snobbery on, on that behalf sometimes that people that do musicals or that have trained to musical theatre can't act as well as other people. Um, but also it's a different world. Like, you know, when I go in and do a musical now, I don't, I don't, I can sometimes go into a room and not know anybody on a first day. And that doesn't happen when I do plays because it's, it's a different type of, it's a different set of people that's, that's working in, there's not many creatives that straddle both of those forms. Um, and again, like you said, not many actors do both of those things either. So there is definitely an acknowledgement there that the worlds of musical theatre and straight theatre are largely separate, with a great deal of misunderstanding on both sides of the boundary that separate them. Interestingly, Becky has worked most often with directors who do work on both plays and musicals regularly, such as Trevor Nunn, Rupert Gould and Rufus Norris. All of these directors understand the value of the expertise and skills found on both sides of the boundary. And I think that's why they understand Becky. The only reason I was able to do both is because I got a job at the RSC because I could sing and dance a bit. And, um, and then once I'd done the RSC, the, the snobbery against my musical theatre training was kind of... didn't exist anymore because I'd done the RSC. It was just easier. It was like a, a meal ticket, basically. I asked Becky for examples of plays she thinks come close to the boundary with musical theatre. Her answer is incredibly short. A lot of headlong stuff. And it's interesting she mentions headlong because Nick Holder in episode three also mentioned headlong when talking about the plays People, Places and Things, The Nether. And Becky also goes on to mention Earthquakes in London. And in my opinion, Chimerica also is a show which uses multiple different styles of theatre, is multi-scenic, is very expressive and could easily become a musical. Indeed, it definitely flirts with the boundary between theatre and musical theatre. The first headlong show that I saw that I, and it's actually one of my favourite ones I've ever seen, was Earthquakes in London. Um, and it was like being at a rave. It's just a really good night. And, and I think headlong do that really well. So they'll have a scene which is really intimate and where there's lots of speakies. And then suddenly they'll just like do a massive dubstep bit and everyone suddenly starts moving in a different way. It's just surprising. It really wakes people up. I think all theatre should aim to wake us up. And I'm interested in Becky's thought that the way theatre wakes us up best is by surprising us. Sometimes I don't want to pay 60 quid for something that I can kind of imagine what it's going to be. There are some shows where 
I can go, mm, okay, yeah, I can sort of imagine how that might go. There'll be a dance number here, someone will sing a love song here, someone will be upset here. It'll look like this. I'll keep my 60 quid and spend it on something else. Here again is the belief that musicals, perhaps due to the complexity of constructing them, tend to be less surprising and more formulaic. And as such, they appeal to those who want to know what they're getting when they buy a ticket to the theatre, rather than those people who hope to be surprised. I asked Becky whether she thinks music is an essential part of theatre. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. You need to shape and tone and wake people up. It's like kicking the audience, isn't it? Music has always been an essential part of our storytelling culture. And I agree with Becky that to tell a good story in a theatre, you need music to be able to shape the story, add tone to it, and to be able to surprise an audience and maybe even give them a kick when they need it. I asked Becky whether or not she thinks the term musical is useful or whether we should just call everything theatre. Oh yeah, it'd be great to call everything theatre. That would be great. That'd be great. That'd be great. It seems as someone who's worked on both sides of the boundary, Becky wishes there wasn't a boundary. And I think the simplest way of achieving this is to refuse to call things musical theatre or straight theatre, but simply to call them theatre. However, it does make me wonder how people can train if they don't know what they're training for, because different types of theatre require different sorts of skills, and it requires those skills to be mastered at different levels and in different ways. Well, I Skill think fucking up. everyone should do everything, because yeah. we do all have a lot to learn from other things, and, and I think if you think you don't, then you're really missing out. It seems that maybe starting with the intention of mastering a broad range of skills and then looking at the skills that you use most and that you like best and really drilling down on those things rather than just ignoring a whole bunch of skills or disciplines would be a good way to go. I, I think we all have a lot to learn from each other as theatre makers and I think if we could all just get along everything would be a lot better. As regular listeners will know, I love multidisciplinary theatre. I love work that learns from and incorporates movement, poetry, visual art, soundscape, video design, along with text. I often worry that musical theatre lives not behind a linear boundary, but actually in a bubble, where it learns from nothing and nothing learns from it. I asked Becky to reflect on that. There needs to be more bravery in musical theatre, I think, and there needs to be more bravery from the people who are writing musicals to explore what else they might be able to do, like Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening is a 2006 American musical based on the Frank Vedekind play from 1891 about teenagers discovering the strains and struggles of sexuality. It fuses a very progressive late 19th century play by a brave German playwright with rock and punk music rarely heard in musical theatre. The juxtaposition of old and new creates a theatrical experience that felt utterly vital and contemporary, but also connected to theatre history. The piece undoubtedly comes from theatre makers reaching across the boundary that separates plays and musicals. And Spring Awakening also experiments with musical styles not traditionally seen in musicals. Like Spring Awakening, you know, oh, okay, I can be really inspired by rock music and Radiohead and, and, and stuff, and I can take an older play and make it so contemporary in terms of the music. So I can cross a certain time period and, and make it smack really healthily of now by the music that I'm using. And I think, again, just trying to more surprising not doing route one writing your show and then going okay so what wouldn't i do here let's do that 
But as we go back to the idea of musicals needing to surprise us more, we wonder if perhaps the commercial ramifications of surprising people just aren't on the cards for musical theatre. I don't really know because, again, I don't really work in commercial West End musicals very often. But I think because they cost more money, there's a desire to make back that money because people have put money into them and, and, and they probably need some of that back at some point, maybe. And I think there, there's always a real risk when you're making art, which I think all theatre is art. There's a real risk. You can't be making it for the sole purpose of, oh, this will bring in the crowds. Or this, you, I think if you try and write a crowd pleaser, I don't know what you're going to... I say to Becky that I'm worried that those theatres who traditionally are known for making more complex and difficult theatre, those who receive Arts Council funding to make it plausible that they can do so, those who could make art of musical theatre, rarely choose to try. Yeah, well then they need to a bit more, I think. It'd be really good. And I think the audiences of those places would really enjoy those things too. Audiences of subsidised theatres enjoy being challenged and given the unexpected. So why do those theatres not try to subvert and reinvent musicals more? Why don't they try and make them their own and give audiences something unexpected? The whole, the whole industry should be less phobic of musicals as a, as a thing that... I wonder whether those buildings think, oh, okay, well, we can't really do a musical because that's not serious enough, or that's not, you know, we're selling out by doing that. But musicals can be serious, and musicals can be art, but we need people to get behind those ideals. If those are the buildings that get the most funding, then I think it would be useful for them to, to broaden their horizons. I would love to see the Royal Court do a musical upstairs. I would fucking love that. Because the whole idea of the Royal Court Upstairs Theatre is that it's not a commercial room. It has 90 seats. So by definition, the work being produced there doesn't have to appeal to a commercial remit. So what would a musical look like if it was produced in that room by that institution? Give Give it a bash. Like, why not? I think that'd be great. I asked Becky what she thinks of theatre makers or venues or producers who categorically say that they don't want to make musicals. I think they've they've decided what that word means then. Or or simply they can't afford it and they know that often they do cost more because you have to have a band and all that kind of stuff. But again, you don't have to have all that stuff. Um, I'd love to see a musical in a 90-seat theatre upstairs at the Royal Court with just someone with a cajon and a guitar and it's acoustic and there's no mics because it's tiny. Musicals can cost a lot more than other types of theatre. They can have automation and huge orchestras and big moving lights and lots of sound equipment, but they don't have to. All that's really required for it to be a musical is for it to have songs and music and for those songs and music to progress a plot and give us more involvement into the characters. And that can just be someone playing the guitar, someone at the keyboard, a DJ, backing tracks. It doesn't have to mean all of the things we traditionally associate with big budget West End musical theatre. I guess what I keep coming back to is people shouldn't fear experimenting. And I think often in musical theatre, it seems sometimes there is a bit of a fear of experimenting. I ask if she thinks it's easier to take risks in plays than in musicals. I think you should take risks in both. I suppose that's what I keep coming back to. And that's why I think part of the reason you might be doing this podcast is to investigate things like that. And I know a lot of the shows that you like are 
risk takers. A lot of the shows I like are risk takers because they smash up the boundaries between musical theatre and other theatre. Whether it's London Road, which dared to make a musical about a community's response to the murder of local prostitutes, or the work of Nehi, whose fusion of music, cinema, choreography and well-known stories makes some of the most vibrant theatre I've ever seen. Directors like Katie Mitchell, Simon McBurney, Eva Van Hover, Rupert Gould, Benedict Andrews, all of them disrupt the accepted boundaries. All of them take elements from all over the theatrical landscape. And I want theatre that uses music and songs, that makes me feel the way that music can, that makes me feel the way the best musicals can, but that also has the same sense of risk-taking, of the ability to make a mess, of the ability to be curious. What can we do? What can we do to create the type of work that we want to see? Because there's not many musicals on in London that I particularly want to go and watch. Becky and I then discuss that if you like Disney movies, then there are musicals for you. If you like the music of ABBA, there are musicals for you. If you like big European melodramatic musicals of the type that were being made in the 80s and 90s, there are musicals in the West End for you. But if you want something different, there rarely is anything for that audience. And I've enjoyed those things too, but I've seen them now and I'd like to see something different. And... Um, I'd like to see a show that that Sleaford Mods write, you know, the band Sleaford Mods who are a kind of almost spoken word dubstep pair from Nottingham who just write about being on the dole and it's just different. It's just something totally different. Why is music so different from musical theatre? Sleaford Mods are a British band talking about British concerns. Why could they not make a musical? Or why could they not make a piece of theatre that defies categorization, that uses their music and their lyrics? The idea of taking risks moves our conversation on to talk about how restricted the genres of music can be in musical theatre. Becky raises the thought that the style of music in Cole Porter was the pop music of the day, and that we have to be able to do the same now. We have to be careful not to let the type of music found in musicals get too outdated. I think that's why places like The National invite David Alban to, to write the music for a show is because I think that's what they're trying to do. Is they're, they're trying to... I'd love to see someone like Kate Nash write a musical because I think Kate Nash's songs... I think her lyrics are, are really um, specific and, and the lyrics are so good because they're just like speech. You know, for me, as, a, as an actor, some, some of the best, some of the most exciting stuff to perform is when the lyrics are, you could read them as a speech and, and you buy it. Here's another thing that musicals can learn from plays, that songs need to be actable, that the words need to be able to communicate things the way that words can in a play. And if the songs are just there to be entertainment or music or noise, they aren't really going to achieve what we need them to achieve. I asked her if she can imagine pop and rock artists reading books about theatre history and craft or sitting around and discussing the lyric and music choices of Cole Porter or George Gershwin or Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, I've no idea. I've no idea if they, what their background is in terms of stuff like that. But I don't think we should expect that they wouldn't. I don't think we should expect, oh no, Sleaford Mods won't be into... Andrew Lloyd Webber because we just don't know that they probably maybe they are um, there's one way to find out 
Just give them a ring. We do both acknowledge that knowing something about the history and craft of musical theatre is useful for writing musical theatre, even if you don't necessarily like what's come before. I think it's really useful when people have a knowledge and a respect for a form of what a musical is before they smash it to bits with a sledgehammer and decide which bits they want to keep. I think that's more useful than not knowing at all. There are a lot of structural elements that can be seen to be in common between a lot of the great musicals of history. However, there is also the potential thought that following those structural waypoints leads to things that are formulaic. And I asked Becky whether she thought using the structure and history of the past was in any way going to be useful for people trying to modernise the form. I think if you gave somebody who'd never written a musical, say Sleaford Mods, for example, if you gave those guys a structure and just said, right, write a story, this has to be the structure, write a story, see what came out, and then get them to abandon the structure or something, not saying that that structure has to exist in a musical in order for it to be good, because I don't think that's the case, but I think it's useful to acknowledge that as a thing that has been previously successful in this type of art. When talking about the restricted music palette that is often found in musical theatre, I'm surprised to discover that Becky didn't like Disney growing up. I, w- I watched some of the Disney films, but I, I wasn't... I found Disney films just a bit annoying when I was a kid. Like, they just annoyed me. I just found it irritating how how perfect everything was. Yeah, I've never been a massive fan of Disney. This is interesting to me because I think it might go back to what Becky said about enjoying things because they're messy. That enjoyment of disorder perhaps meant that she found Disney films too polished and hence didn't like them. From this, I would potentially also say that as we get older or more mature, that we prefer things to be more like what we have found life to be, which is messy and complicated and fucked up. And I think kids love Disney films because they haven't lost their innocence yet. And when adults love Disney films, it's because they want to grasp onto some sense of what innocence they might have lost. But there are those of us who want to engage with our lost innocence, with what is broken and messy and weird. And I often find that those people don't believe that musicals are capable of that. And maybe that's because they associate musicals with Disney. And they associate Disney with innocence and polish and order. I asked Becky if she thinks a lack of diversity in those making musicals is leading to a lack of diversity in the type of musicals being made. So I remember listening to another podcast, which you got me into, Reply All. Reply All is a podcast about the internet, and it is undoubtedly my favourite podcast. It uses the internet as a lens through which to talk about just about everything. And The episode Becky's talking about, number 52, is called Raising the Bar. And I highly recommend that you listen to episode 52 if the idea of diversity in companies is interesting to you. And also listen to Reply All in general, because it's marvellous. And they were talking about um, diversity in a tech company. I think it was Twitter or something like that. And um, basically they, they... There was a study about diversity in terms of race, gender, class, and what they discovered was that companies that were more diverse were able to do better. Because if you're just working with a load of people who are of a similar background, race and class to you, 
the likelihood that when you get stuck, one of them will be able to help you is slimmer than if you have somebody who is totally not like you, from a different country, is a different gender. People have different skills. And so there are a lot of white men writing musicals. Um, and that's not to say that's a bad thing. That's, that's great. Like, but I just wonder whether the reason that we haven't had that much difference going on in terms of style is because is, is the industry just kind of talking to itself? I think there undoubtedly needs to be more diversity in the voices making musical theatre, and indeed theatre in general. But as well as diversity of race, gender and background, I also think we should encourage and ensure that rehearsal rooms are full of people from diverse theatrical practice backgrounds. Because a room of musical theatre stalwarts would probably make less interesting work than if there was a performance poet in the mix, or a verbatim playwright, or a modernist choreographer. As Becky says, people from one background don't make the most interesting work, and I think that applies equally to social background and theatrical background. Once again, there are boundaries present, and I think we have to do something to remove those boundaries and let people access each other's disciplines and each other's work more freely. I think that's where boundaries become difficult, is if someone goes, well, I'm, I'm a musical theatre writer, or well, I'm a performance artist. So, no, if everyone just like, puts their shit in the pot and cooks it up, then you've got a beautiful cake. <laughs> as I wrapped up the interview, I asked Becky, as someone who has been on both sides of the boundary, who has done plays, who has done musical theatre, what would you like to do next? just like to keep doing more of everything because I get bored if doing one thing and I think there's merit in everything I think as long as the story is good or you've got something to say I think that's just the main thing with theatre just have a point have something to say I then asked if she had any advice for audiences it's always just go and see something different otherwise you'll get bored right you I would there's loads of other stuff out there that you will enjoy just as much maybe even more so what have i learned today firstly that perhaps plays have the benefit of being messy and unpredictable while musicals are too often known for their polish and perfection i think that will need to change for us to get riskier edgier and more innovative musicals secondly i've learned that it can be very difficult to work on both sides of the boundary line and that being too skilled in musical theatre can often make people assume that you can't or shouldn't work in plays. I think we need to break the perception that having skills should prevent you from working in other mediums, and that people should be encouraged to learn as many skills as possible and be able to see how many overlaps there are between all types of theatre work. Thirdly, it's interesting that more theatre makers are beginning to flirt with the boundary, and we should encourage that. We should learn as much as possible from every medium and genre of theatre and mix things together into one big pot. Fourthly, venues, producers and directors need to take more of a chance on work outside their comfort zone. Just because they think their audiences won't want musical theatre or something on that end of the spectrum, they could very well be instrumental in redefining what musicals could be and could redefine the audiences that could engage with them. Fifth and finally, a diversity of music, talent and background is essential to create original, well-interrogated and artistically worthwhile work that doesn't allow itself to get stuck in the same rut. I think there has been a boundary between musical theatre and plays, but I think there are all sorts of boundaries between all sorts of work, and if we're not careful, those boundaries can become walls. I think we need to remove those boundaries and make it so people can travel freely between all sorts of work, 
all mediums and all genres, because only then will we make the best possible theatre. Join me next week as I discuss the show Miss Revolutionary Idol Berserker, recently seen at the Barbican Theatre as part of the Lyft Festival. Next week's episode also includes an exclusive interview with the show's creator and director, Toko Nikaido. Discord was hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Editorial supervision was by Emma Clauber. Editorial support was from Daisy Chute, Michael Conley, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. Incidental music was by LP Legrand. Our theme music was by Luke Bateman.